Friends, once again, my name's Mitchell Boone. I'm the pastor here at White Rock, and we are really, really excited to be worshiping with you. Um, today, as Rebecca mentioned in the call to worship, today marks our one-year anniversary of moving worship entirely uh, to a digital and virtual space. Um, on March 11th, I was at a Dallas Mavericks game with um, Reverend Josh Esparza, an associate pastor here on staff, and uh, we were watching uh, Dallas play Denver, and during that game, we got a series of notifications from ESPN letting us know that the season was indeed uh, at least postponed for 30 days. And I remember being in that space um, feeling a bit uh, overwhelmed and, and disoriented to uh, what was going to be a new reality for us as a church. And so we've been in this space for an entire year, and I know that it is challenging. Um, I first want to say this. I'm proud of our staff, leadership team, and I'm really proud of you for adapting and changing and uh, leaning into uh, what it means to try to figure it out together as a community of faith. I am really grateful that you've stuck with us and stayed engaged prioritizing your spiritual well-being in this faith community, even in the midst of a pandemic. And just the fact that we've been here for a year, I think, uh, well, it is overwhelming. I want to say that we do believe as a staff and leadership team that there is hope on the horizon. We're seeing numbers decline. We know that, uh, you know, change is coming, especially with the vaccines. And so, here in the next few days, either by the end of the week or, or next week, you'll receive a letter from me kind of outlining how we're preparing to come back to this space. We're not going to put a firm date on anything. I've said that from the beginning. But I want you to know that you'll hear from me uh, in the coming days about how we're going to be repositioning what worship looks like now and in the next uh, several weeks to prepare for a return to gathering in person. Um, but even though we've been kind of apart for um, a year, at least physically, the work of the church continues, and we know that. And, and one of the things that I love about being a pastor here at White Rock is that we enter into these worship series where we get to pick apart and, and really dive deep into themes that we think are important for us as a faith community that kind of bubble up out of the uh, narratives that we read in Scripture. And so we are in Lent this season um, that allows us to really pay attention to our own mortality, the death of Jesus, and what it means for us and for the entire world. So this year's kind of theme for Lent has been um, a series that is focused on really the last 24 hours of Jesus's life. And we've been calling it, you know, more than just a day um, because it, the ramifications of what happens in these 24 hours uh, reverberate throughout all of creation and continue to make deep changes within us some 2,000 years Later, So last week we were focused really on Judas's betrayal of Jesus and Jesus being arrested. Today's text is in Mark. It's in the 14th chapter. We're still there and we'll be reading verses 53 through 65. 
Um, But before I read the text, I think it's really important that we just put it into a little bit of context, right? Jesus is brought forward. Once he's arrested, he's brought in, in front of the high priests, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders of uh, the Jewish community. Essentially, this council or court um, is created. Um, it's an ad hoc kind of thing, right? And so there were courts like this all over Israel. It was called the Sanhedrin. And um, here in Mark, we see this court being kind of convened uh, to uh, put Jesus on trial. And in fact, it appears before Jesus goes in front of Pilate. Um, Now, like I said, there were Sanhedrins all over Israel. This would have been like the Supreme Court convened by the high priest. And um, these courts would deal with matters that were seemingly trivial to really serious concerns. But make no mistake, this court operated in the midst of Roman occupation. So whatever decisions this court was going to make ultimately had to be approved or signed off on by Rome. And so in many ways, uh, this court still had to rely on Rome uh, essentially to carry out the orders of the court. Now, here's the important thing, and here's why I'm prefacing it, because Mark's gospel, as well as other gospels that we have uh, in our scripture, really shifts blame uh, quite effectively from Rome to the Jewish leaders. Um, And so as we read this text this morning, I think we have to be aware that Mark is writing in a very specific context, written, you know, around 60 uh, CE. Uh, Mark is on the cusp of being kind of created and, and birthed out of a community that finds itself in tension with uh, Jewish neighbors. And so we have this group of, uh, of Jews who have uh, become followers of Christ, so Jewish kind of Christian identity, and, and there's tension rising among um, Jewish neighbors, and it's starting to boil over. And so when we read this text and we don't examine it, when we take an unexamined approach to Mark 14 and 15, it is easy or too easy to shift blame um, and begin to demonize Jewish communities. In fact, the church has a long history of doing this. And so as we continue to see a rise in anti-Semitic views and hate speech right now in today's world, um, I really just needed to say that and, and say that the most important thing we can do when reading this text this morning is uh, to shift the blame back, right? To see ourselves in the story and also recognize what happens when we are given an opportunity to hold power and how easy it is for us humans, right, our human nature, to abuse that power. And so with that, hear these words from Mark 14, 53 through 65. They took Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests, the elders and the scribes were assembled. Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards, warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were looking for testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many gave false testimony against him, and their testimony did not agree. Some stood up and gave false testimony against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another. 
not made with hands. But even on this point, their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, have you no answer? What is it that they testify against you? But he, Jesus, was silent and did not answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, why do we still need witnesses? We or you have heard this blasphemy. What is your decision? And all of them condemned him as deserving death. Some began to spit on him, to blindfold him, and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. The guards also took him over and beat him. For the word of God in scripture, for the word of God among us, and for the word of God within us, thanks be to God. Will you pray with me? May the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer, the one who calls us off the sidelines and into the spaces where we will ultimately have to make really difficult choices. Be gracious to us as we continue to wrestle with what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So, as I had mentioned, right, we have Jesus and his followers are really moving through these last 24 hours. That's the theme of our Lenten series. And, of course, as a good storyteller will do, the stakes begin to rise and the tension is mounting. And the story of Jesus' rest, trial, and execution all really begin to kind of give us a sense that there is a pressure cooker and, and the tension is really becoming unsustainable. And honestly, it gives us very little room to breathe. Historically, this text would have been read, uh, really most of 14 and all of chapter 15 would have been read uh, at one time during Holy Week to try to invoke that feeling of helplessness that Jesus was experiencing and this idea, right, that Jesus was ultimately being moved uh, through kind of the checks and the, and the, the hoops to a crucifixion that is, um, that's awful, right? And, and this is the kind of goal that the author has to, to try to conjure up this feeling for us. The good thing for for us now, is that we've decided to kind of pick this text apart and allow us to have some room to breathe during this season of Lent, to, to allow us the space to meditate and think about what is actually happening and what is Jesus going through and how is it affecting his disciples. And that's the benefit of kind of breaking up these verses. It gives us that space we need to process well, but there is no doubt that the tension now is really high in the narrative. In fact, this is the first time that we see physical violence, right, acted upon Jesus, right, aimed at Jesus's body. And the author of Mark, right, beyond the importance of the narrative, uh, there are really two other functions that this text has for us as readers. Um, this writing in Mark is is really about connecting Jesus to the physical body, 
You see, in Mark, there is no birth story. And often we use this word incarnation to describe God choosing to make God's self known to us by becoming fully human. And in this midst of the theological concept, we, we celebrate or we give thanks to God for all the ways that God chooses to dwell among us. This is obviously what we do at Christmas, and we sing beautiful songs, and we have beautiful prayers, all aimed at creating the space necessary to appreciate the incarnation as a gift to us as humans, right? The challenge here in Mark is that we have no birth narrative. And so Mark is attaching the incarnation not to what it means to be born, but what it means to be dead. Mark has no birth narrative, and, and so the incarnation shifts, right, to what really defines us as being alive. It's not to be born, but it is to die, And so Jesus in front of the Sanhedrin is the first time we encounter this sort of acting upon Jesus' physical body in violent ways. But beyond that, there is a deeper theme emerging in all of Mark, but it reaches a crescendo here. And that is the theme of paradox, right? That the author of Mark is really after setting this paradox up for us as readers. And to avoid, I think, the Alanis Morissette issue with uh, misappropriating or defining it poorly, irony, right? Uh, That ironic snafu. I want to be really clear on what a paradox is, right? A paradox is a seemingly absurd idea that can be found out to be true. It's essentially an outlandish proposition that, when investigated, can well be true. So beyond this idea that God is literally suffering, suffering, that the incarnation is experienced in the violence committed upon Jesus' body, we also have this paradox that God chooses suffering, right? We have this primary theological issue of Jesus' identity, the claim that Jesus makes in the text, that Jesus is the Messiah, the blessed one, right? And yet Jesus is spit upon, beaten, and blindfolded. And even though we know this story and we know how this story ends, the paradox of the Messiah being convicted, beaten, and executed proves difficult for us as followers of this Messiah. Because what is even more unsettling is that when we allow this paradox to begin to seep into our own lives and affect how we live day in and day out. Now, for a long time, I've held the theological position, and this one is examined. Some of mine remain unexamined, but I have examined this theological position, and I've come to the belief that the death penalty is fundamentally wrong, that it is not uh, coherent with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I believe that the death penalty should be abolished. I don't think that shocks any of you who've heard me preaching for nine years here at White Rock. And for a long time, it was just something that I held to be true and would say on occasion from the pulpit or in conversations. And that was until uh, Bruce Anton uh, relentlessly pestered me to become more involved. 
And here's what you need to know about Bruce. Bruce serves on a leadership team, and he's generous, and he's thoughtful, and he shares his Dallas Maverick tickets with me. I, I love Bruce. He is also relentless when it comes to defending his uh, clients, especially those on death row. And so he honestly would not stop bothering me about becoming a spiritual advisor to one of his clients. His name was William Rayford. And so really, honestly, to get Bruce to stop bothering me, I just said yes. The first time I visited death row, Bruce picked me up at 5.15 in the morning. I'm not a morning person. I didn't appreciate the long drive uh, to death row. We drove through that early morning, and I remember feeling anxious and nervous and altogether clueless about what this experience would be like for me. And after we jumped through the kind of arbitrary, uh, confusing regulations that the Department of Correction has at any given time, um, I arrived inside the prison uh, with $20 of quarters so I could buy William Rayford the cheapest, most disgusting, pathetic turkey sandwich ever out of a vending machine. And I remember I sat down in this cold booth uh, with a poor connection uh, using a telephone, and I simply waited as I appeared into the glass where no one was sitting yet, and I could see the scratches on that glass. And I remember just thinking to myself, I have no idea what to expect. Eventually, Rayford's led into uh, the visitation area, and he sits down in front of me, and he has this, like, huge smile on his face, right? The next two hours were sad and challenging and beautiful and rewarding, and I'm happy to actually say more about it. If you want to know more about that experience, you can send me a DM on Facebook or Instagram. Um, but I just want to say this. After my visit and as I reflected on our time together as we drove back to Dallas, it was clear that my time with Rayford was one of the most deeply spiritual experiences of my life. And that, my friends, is the paradox, right? That a relationship with a convicted murderer, death row inmate, could make me a better Christian. The absurdity of that is the truth we pursue in the Gospel of Mark. It is the truth that we're invited to see when we hear about Jesus in front of the council. Jesus' encounter with power does not lead to a showdown, one that we would expect would be coming, between systems of oppression and God. It's the antithesis of Moses in front of Pharaoh, Elijah battling it out with the ball prophets, Noah, and even the flood, right? Jesus shows that victory comes to us not in the form of winning at whatever cost, but by sacrifice, in fact, this trial is simply a culmination of Jesus' entire ministry laid out throughout the Gospel of Mark. Because it's throughout Mark we recognize that Jesus' identity is always being examined or questioned, propped up by declarations or chipped away at by apprehensions or misapprehensions, right? Right? Jesus responds here in Mark 14 to the chief priest's question, are you the Messiah, by stating, I am, along with an allusion to Daniel 7. 
identifying himself with a familiar figure of hope in the Hebrew Bible. In his response, Jesus confirms for those who question him and his ministry the paradox, right? That the Messiah has been arrested will ultimately be put to death by the state. And for the astute reader of Mark, it's a given. This is what Jesus has been leading up to throughout his ministry. Remember, Jesus is baptized and immediately... (laughs) Not celebrated, there's not a parade, but sent out into the wilderness. When Peter finally confesses for the first time that Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus goes on to tell them about his own suffering that is about to take place. At the heart of Jesus' admission in front of the council, in the identity, right, being wrapped up in this paradoxical understanding of what it means to be the Christ, is this fundamental truth, right? That the beloved Son of God has been arrested, spit upon, and beaten. The truth is we typically enjoy a paradox, especially in forms of entertainment. We like, I think, the challenge of squaring it with uh, the impossible when it comes to characters we see on binge-worthy TV shows or our favorite books. It's fascinating and enthralling a way to tell a story, to create this kind of internal struggle and paradox. And we can get lost in the beauty of this paradox, even in the Gospel of Mark. But Lent offers us something much more, right? And I think the question for us this morning, and really the question we've been asking for the past several weeks, is can we move from consumers of this story to participants? Can we we move from treating the story of Jesus like one of our favorite novels? Right? Up there with Harry Potter or To Kill a Mockingbird or whatever your favorite novel is. Can we move the gospel of Mark from that shelf into the daily life that we're living? Because the paradox of Christ runs deep into the very real way we are called to be disciples of Jesus, the blessed one, the Christ, the Messiah, who in the face of power is rather silent and defiant. As we read in Zechariah, the prophecy that the shepherd being struck will cause the sheep to scatter is not simply something we read in the Hebrew Bible. It is, if we are honest with ourselves, a daily reminder of what it's like to follow a Messiah who ultimately ends up on a cross. It is an expression used to capture the essence of the human experience and our fundamental nature, right? The fickleness of our nature is often on display when we are called to participate, not just read about, but participate in the paradox of the Christ. It's a great story until we recognize that following Christ has very very real consequences around our neatly assembled and compartmentalized lives. Next week, we're going to look at Peter 
And we will actually see this on full display. But before we get there, we have to remove ourselves from the position of observer and begin thinking and meditating on what it means for us to live every day. Every single day as a follower of Christ, the one who is beaten, spit upon, and led to his execution. Because to truly follow Christ is to risk everything by aligning ourselves with the battered and beaten. Too often the church scatters, much like Peter does in this text, and we safely distance ourselves from the oppressed and blend in with the oppressor. And yet the promise we have, that, that hymn of promise, right, that we gather to sing together and to sing for our community week in and week out, is that Christ, in that paradox of claiming to be the Messiah while being bound and beaten, gives way to a truth that is ultimately life-giving and reminds us, as Paul says in Romans, that nothing, absolutely nothing, can separate us from God's love. And that even in these dark moments in Mark, ultimately, God is working to restore all of creation. And that, my dear friends, is the good and life-altering news that we need this morning. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.